Downset Hike, it's time to talk about our feelings, panic attacks, depression, attachment theory, disassociation, both on and off the field. Wait, what? That's right. Real stories from athletes and comedians. Batter up. Let's make friends with the voices in our heads. You're listening to Sad Jocks. And now, here's your host, Katie. It's me, Katie Felber. I'm your host. What is up, y'all? It's your girl, Kay Phelps. Hey, thanks for that intro, self. Welcome to episode one of Sad Jocks. My name is Katie, and I'm tethering by a string, sitting in my closet surrounded by blankets, which is not not how I grew up, but I digress. Now, you might be wondering, who are you? Well, I'm a former D1 lacrosse player for Cal Berkeley, but I grew up playing all sports, and I've always been anxious. Look, I've had more panic attacks than goals in my entire athletic career combined, and that is a lot. I now work as a comedy producer and performer in LA, and I started this podcast to dig into athletes' inner worlds and normalize the conversation around mental health. This week, I had the honor of sitting down with Festus Azalee, a pro basketball player who won an NBA championship with the Golden State Warriors in 2015. After an injury in 2017, Festus started a movement called Rebuilding the Beast to amplify stories of perseverance and strength. So let's dive in, folks. Whether you're on a light jog, sprinting, or simply foam rolling in your living room, curl up, huddle up, let's play some ball. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing fabulous. It's a beautiful afternoon in California. Feel pretty good. You ever hear the classic Seinfeld thing, Festivus for the rest of us? Oh, you get that a lot? Was it December 23rd, I think? The memes just start rolling on in around then? Yeah, all the memes, people hitting me up and congratulating me or wishing me a happy Festivus on that day. I actually think it's hilarious. It's awesome. That's pretty funny. Yeah, you get like a nice Seinfeld meme just dedicated to you. Between that and the Gunsmoke references, because there is a Festus character on the show, an old Western show, and his name was Festus. Apparently he was a sidekick, which I'm like, yeah, nah, that's not really me, but. Interesting. So I'm a, I'm a second generation Festus. My dad is Festus as well. So maybe that's where my granddad got the name from or the Bible. Yeah, it could be biblical too. I was just gifted a Bible by a friend actually. And um, I'm gonna do some research. It's <laughs> <laughs> towards the end. So essentially you're just gonna be reading the whole Bible. Yeah, I've only really read the Old Testament, but I'm excited to get into it. So. Okay, let's freaking hop into sad jocks here. Yeah. Just tell me briefly about your childhood and your journey to the U.S. and the NBA um, and kind of catch us up to speed as to... So you're in Sacramento right now. I'm currently in Sacramento. Um, Here with my family, my mom and my brothers. I moved to America when I was 14 years old. This was in 2004. I moved here and uh, my parents thought it was a good idea to send me here just for you know, a better opportunity just to see the world, you know, coming from Africa uh, and moving here at the time, especially at that age by myself, big transition, a lot of things to deal with at a young age. Um, basketball came into my life shortly after that. Started playing at about 15 years old. Um, dealt with some tough, you know, I, I was cut in my high school, from my high school team because I'd never played. I was very behind. And um, when everybody gave up hope on me, um, you know, I, I found this mentor, this guy found me rather, and kind of helped me and groomed me and, you know, was able to motivate me to keep working on the game, even though everybody else gave up on me. Yeah, I made it to college on a scholarship, and that was actually the goal. 
my goal and the, one of the reasons why I moved to America was to be a doctor. That was my dream. And playing basketball was supposed to be a tool to do that because I wanted to get a scholarship. Well, the plan changed when I actually started to enjoy the game. And the enjoyment yeah. came after, you know, as a kid, like you get cut from a team. It's, it's really tough for you me mentally, right? It's like you feel like, wow, like you could conquer the world as a kid. You could do anything. Just work hard and anything can happen. Well, I tried yeah. to do that and I didn't make it. And so when I eventually was kept putting more effort in and I made it to college, I felt like, yo, let me see how far, how much farther I can take this. Mm -hmm. And so somewhere in my junior year, I switched my majors. I wasn't pre-med anymore. And I switched to economics, and I just went all in with basketball. Wow. And uh, by my, you know, by the end of that junior year, uh, I was an NBA prospect. I was, you know, the team captain. I was all conference, and it just it shows you that you know eventually I got drafted after my senior year. But it just shows you that anything can happen with with a lot of hard work and a lot of faith. I love that. And so basically, so when you were first starting out, you got cut, you said, from your from a high school team? Yeah, I was cut from a high school team. And then two years later, I got scholarships from a bunch of schools all around the country. And even then, still, I was still pretty raw when it came to basketball. I took those skills and I kept working on them. And then three years later, you know, those skills were very apparent. And... Um, yeah, and then I was an NBA prospect, and I was drafted by the Golden State Warriors in the first round. Bless up. Yeah, and it was the Golden State Warriors before the team that everybody knows now. It was the team that, you know, we had to rebuild, and I was a part of a team that just had a dream. As, as rookies, it was, you know, I was drafted with two other players, Draymond Green is another one notable, and uh, Harrison Barnes. And we came in as rookies, not knowing what to expect with the NBA, to this team that had won 18 out of, they had won 18 out of 82 games the year before we got there. So they were pretty bad. Steph Curry was injured and, you know, all these things. And so we started off with this dream of like, all right, let's see what we can do. And years later now, you can look back and say, wow, this team is amazing. But I was a part of that rebuild. And it's, it's, it was pretty, it was a pretty, I, pretty cool thing to see what it takes to build up a team by 2015 we actually our dreams became a reality because we became nba champions hell yeah i remember that one yeah it was something that the whole world it was like what this team that nobody expected but they were the lovable team right because you know a bunch of good guys a bunch of guys with amazing stories a lot of underdogs and um, yeah, it was it was this crazy ride of a lifetime. In fact, I was so scared after we won a championship because I was like, there's no way this happened. You know, this has to be a dream. It's just one of those things that you put in enough work and you have enough faith. It, you know, dreams usually do happen that way, so. I love it. Go off King, permission to go completely off. I do love to see it. I want to transition to that mental aspect. I want to dig into that because this podcast is all about being a sad jock. Not to say that everybody is uh, sad and I'm not focusing on depression, but I want to get into kind of what's underneath the surface. You know, you get on that team uh, fresh out of college, out of Vanderbilt, right? Um, are you thinking at this time, like, do you still have that underdog mentality or is your confidence level starting to grow? I mean, you get drafted, which is lit, so you're probably feeling good. But um, what was it like mentally adjusting to that team? Um, okay, so 
Adjusting to a team uh, in the NBA is, is, is different from college. College, you know, you, you kind of, I guess it's kind of the same in the fact that you all grow up together. And a bunch of us on the team were young. So we, we, we grew up that way together. And coming to a team that was bad before, we were kind of learning how to be successful together. This is more of a trying to transition from playing the game as something you love mm -hmm. to playing it as a job. Which is a it's a it's a weird transition, and now it's like okay, well, like I am getting paid for this. It doesn't really take away your love of the way you work for it, but it also puts an added pressure in the way that you compete, and the way your you know the way you you your status is if you get benched, and I don't know, it's just it was just another facet that we had to kind of adjust to. As, yeah. as athletes coming from college. That is really interesting. I played um, I played D1 lacrosse at Cal, and I mean, I never got to the next level because I actually got injured two years in on my foot. But it did start to, I mean, you can't really compare it to the NBA at all, but I kind of get what you're saying about feeling like it is a job because you really have to like take care of the machine that is your body and make sure that it's up to speed and at the same time, stay mentally focused um, so that you're not burning out. Um, and I think that was something I went through. I mean, I was going through a lot of anxiety when I was in college and um, didn't really have anybody on the team to kind of talk to about that kind of thing. It was more so like you're showing up and it's like what you're doing on the field. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wanna talk about that aspect. So let's fast forward 2016. You signed with the Portland Trailblazers and then you suffered a minor setback from a knee procedure, which then led to surgery. What was going through your mind at that time? Like, did you have flashes of like, okay, it's all over? Like, how did you stay mentally focused? Um, so, you know, I won a championship with the Warriors and the following year we were in the finals and we, we broke the record for the most wins in NBA history. So it was a historic season. All we had to do was cap off the season with a win, right? And it would have been, we the best team in the history of the NBA. Well, we ended up, we were actually up in the series to like first to four in the finals. We're up three to one. And something that everybody around the world heard, because it's like, okay, one more game and they're done. And we had never lost two games the whole year, and it was this, this big deal. Yeah. We ended up losing 4-3. They came back and won three straight games against us that had never lost two games. And it was this crazy high to a crazy low of, wow. So in the midst of dealing with that, our team gets broken up. And I ended up signing with the Portland Trailblazers. Um, had high ambitions and high hopes of what I was going to do with this team. Now it's like, yo, I'm excited to be the guy that helps this team get over the hump as well because I have been through so many different rebuilds and programs, whether it was in college, whether it was in the NBA. Now I wanted to help this team. Well, um, yeah, I suffered the knee injury, and I never even got a chance to play for the Portland Trailblazers. That was, that was really tough. That one, you know, even losing an NBA championship – as hard as that was, because after we lost that championship, I didn't get out of bed for at least a month. I was so, like, sad and angry and, like, what could I have done? All the what-ifs. Getting injured is even worse for an athlete because the thing that you love so much, the thing that is your solace 
um, the place that you go when you're having a tough time is basketball. You go and you train and you work harder, and that's that's where you you know. But with yeah. rehab and with with that, it's different. When you're injured, you know, it's like they take away all that from you. And I think that it didn't really hit me until I was in a wheelchair. I was in a wheelchair in 2017 for six months. And the toughest part about this injury was that, you know, um, it was going to take me about two years to recover. So wheelchair for six months and then that, you know, you don't, not only is basketball taken away from you, but you have to sit in your emotions and your sadness and whatever feelings that you're feeling at the time and Mm. you know for me as a basketball player sometimes you see that as your identity because you put so much into it you work so hard hard at your sport and um you know you have teammates to pull through with and all these different things but at the time it's just you and your physical therapist and you know your family my family was so key for me during that time yeah i was just gonna ask like during that time, that six-month period that you're in a wheelchair, did you, um, so you were close with your family, did you find yourself um, gravitating towards any books or mentors at that time to keep you mentally focused? Were you, because when I was adjusting to Zoloft, it, I mean, it's really, again, not similar to you at all, but kind of. Was that your mentor? My mentor was a Zoloft. Uh, absolutely. No, I'm joking. My mentor actually was Buddhist meditation and a book called The Untethered Soul. That book keeps coming up. Actually, my brother just finished reading that, so I'm going to yeah. go steal his name. Yo. So Absolutely. I've read it about twice. My soul still is a bit tethered, but I have a a little bit more untethering to go and I feel like I'm getting close. But um, that book especially did help me in conjunction with Zoloft to sit in my feelings and to really kind of listen to the second voice in your head because that's what it's about. It's kind of realizing that you oftentimes have this other second voice, which is based in the ego, kind of telling you what you should do, what you can't do, what you're supposed to do and really these are all kind of fictitious little stories meant to protect us you know i think like part of the challenge in being in becoming someone who's a master and in control and more aligned with your higher self is realizing when that second voice comes in and at least for me that second voice is usually that pestering anxious voice and being like you know what i'm not going to go down that road right now I know my larger goals and I'm going to stay focused on that. Um, and before, I mean, it was, I was a little bit weaker and I would get into that cycle of obsessing. For me, that's what a lot of like panic and anxiety came from, comes from that obsessive thing where it's like, I get something in my head and I can't let it go. And it would help me with lacrosse because I would be able to train obsessively and like go to the wall, play wall ball and like not stop until like I hit a certain number. But it also can drive you crazy. I I definitely understand when you say that, you know, you train obsessively because, you know, you have this thing that's always telling you you can't. And as an athlete, that actually is, it it works kind of to your good to have that ego that tells you you can't do something. Yeah, right. Because then you're like, you're really busting and you're busting your tail and getting after it because you're like, I'm going to do this thing. Well, for me, that ego was still there. But I couldn't work, I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do, right? I can't walk. I can't even go to the bathroom by myself. And I needed help for everything, which for not only just a man, but an athlete, I think that that's one of the toughest things because we're so independent. We feel like we are anyway. My, the things that helped me during that time, 
because I was so I was so upset. I think that my biggest anger was the fact that I do I feel like I do most things right. Uh, maybe that's just my ego and but I feel yeah. like I tried my hardest because of where I started from and especially with the the early rejection of my career. I never took things for granted. I worked my tail off all the time. Um yeah. I I feel like I treated people with respect. I just I, I always felt like I was doing the right thing. And so when something bad happened to me and not just bad, it's like bad things happen to other people all the time, but something that took away this thing that I worked so hard for. I was so angry because I felt like, why me? Like, why, you know? And then yeah. you start being angry at God and all these different things because you feel like, yo, somebody's, like, you have to blame something. A few things really helped me during that time because I was so, you know, I had days where I would just break down crying because I was just look at my leg and it was, my leg was so swollen. I couldn't even move it. I had, because I don't really like taking medicine at all. And yeah. so the pain for me was so crazy because the, 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 actually the benefits of taking the pain away is worse than the, the feeling I get. I get really nauseous and the room starts spinning when I try to get off of it. It's, I get really like, I get addicted to those things quickly and I, I never want to be in that position. The things that really helped me were my parents. I had my parents by my side and they really saved me because having them to talk to about these issues and they would always direct me, whether it's because their faith with God is, is my parents survived wars in, in Africa. They, they've been through a lot, especially together. Every time their faith is just like, they were just like, they were priming me. Every time it's like, yo, you're having a bad day. And you know, my dad would always, he has, he's full of African proverbs. I love and that. he asked me the question, he said, how do you know when somebody is strong? And the answer to that question is when they're lifting and they're carrying heavy things. That's how you know when somebody's strong is when they're carrying yeah. something heavy. And so you always say you're strong. You always say you're a warrior. Now it's heavy and you need to carry it now. This is the time where you show your strength. And that always stuck with me because I always felt like, wow, why me? And then essentially what he did there was like, he changed that to try me. It was like, I'm the person that's supposed to deal with this. I'm the person that can deal with this. You yeah. know, and a lot of times, you know, these mental battles that we deal with, it's tough because nobody understands. Nobody can feel the pain that you're dealing with when it's a mental struggle. Um, only you can. And so it's hard for people to judge and to but a change in perspective is so powerful for people who are growing through going through things like that because it takes one thing, it takes one moment. Right? I was going through all these different emotions, and this is weeks and weeks of sitting there in pain and misery. And, but it takes one moment to see something, and it just like it takes you out. It just pulls you. It, it like almost makes you see light. Yeah. Right. And so it was a lot of different conversations, but that one is the one that really I remember now vividly. And my mom has told me so many different things as well about my faith and and what my name really means and why she gave me that name and all these things and all these different words they really changed my perspective and they gave me the responsibility i felt like now it's on me to get myself out of this hole and getting out of this hole i got to take it one day at a time and so with that attitude i just started playing a game so doing rehab for six months in a wheelchair is not easy for anybody. It's, it's actually will drive you insane. But it started becoming like every day, because it's twice a day, right? So every day it was almost like I was playing a game. Like I was playing a basketball game is what I was looking at it as. And so it was like, okay, today I'm playing against the Minnesota Timberwolves right now. 
And yeah. so I got to give everything I got, right? And then later that night, I'm playing against the Phoenix Suns. And it's like, I got to give everything I got. And so even just a little bit of, you know, it just became fun for me, right? Yeah. So now I'm going to go off topic a little bit because something happened during this time, and I think it's important for people to hear stuff like this. So yeah. now I'm coming to rehab every day, and I'm juiced. I'm pumped. I'm, like, going through people. I'm smiling, happy. I'm going through my rehab. So people around me, I was, at the, I was in the physical there. I was in Vail, Colorado, and people usually come there to ski, right? And yeah. so when they ski, they get hurt. They have surgery. And then, you know, so that hospital is a, like, there's a lot of patients, a lot of people going through different things. And so people yeah. would see me every day for six months or nine months I was there actually, but six months I couldn't walk. And during those time, during that time, they would see me come in smiling, just like coming in with energy. Every time I came in, it was energy. Cause I was my, I was like, yo, you're not going to break me, right? You can't break me. Yeah. And, um, as they saw this, it's crazy how people start gravitating towards that energy. And it's like, some, at some point in the middle of all this, like, patients started seeing that. They started, like, kind of moving towards me. People started trying to become friends with me. And it actually made the process more fun. By four or five months in, doctors are bringing their patients to me. And they're cool. saying, hey, this, this person is having a bad day. Can you talk to them, please? Mm-hmm. You know? So these are things that, you know, you never know. Your strength could actually be it could be a savior for somebody else. That's beautiful. It, it was like this, it was this cycle now. It became like, I was positive, I was giving other people positive energy, and they in turn were giving me that positive energy back. So it was like this cycle that just every day I was looking forward to going to my rehab, which was a tough thing. But then my mindset, cha- my mindset shift gave me the energy to keep going through that. So I had definitely tough days. But it yeah. taught me so much, and it taught me the ability and the, and the power of faith and positivity. It's beautiful because, I mean, there's been research done on the vibration of positive affirmations and mantras physically changes, like your auric field and your chemical makeup. Um, a book of mine that I loved reading in high school was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Meaning. Yeah, and, uh, I've read so many of these different books, and, and they're so powerful. No, totally. I mean... I should reread it. It's like this dude's stuck in a concentration camp during the Holocaust and realizes that all of his freedoms are taken away from him except for the ability to choose one's own attitude. And I think that's so empowering because really like that's helped me a lot too when things feel out of my control or whatever. You have that um, that millisecond to almost just switch it. You can go down that road of like pity, why me? all this stuff, or you can just pivot, do a quick little pick and roll, and then go the other way, and you're just like, okay, and people want you to succeed, and people want people want to feel that, and so I think it's really contagious, and I just think it's incredible. Was that the, was that the uh, moment that you started to think about rebuilding the beast? There was, there were so many different things. I think that, so the, my project that I started recently is called Rebuilding the Beast, and this idea that your pain and your struggles are a part of your rebuild, it's actually a part of what's making you great. Mm. And this all came from me reading different books. You talk about Viktor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. I've read so many different autobiographies. And in reading stories, I got to learn, wow, everybody who created something great, everybody who made something amazing, 
they yeah. all went through periods where they felt like I felt in that moment, which is helpless. It felt like things were going wrong and they felt like, wow, the world is against me. But mm-hmm. they just kept going. I, yeah. read, I read Shoe Dog, which is a book about Phil Knight and the creation of Nike. Mm. Right now, we wear Nikes all the time. We all wear sneakers. But at the time, when he said, I have a dream of making sneakers and making shoes that everybody would wear sneakers all the time, casually, people thought he was crazy. And it's so wild thinking about it now. It's like, yo, we wear sneakers all the time. But at the time, yeah. why would people wear sneakers walking up and down the street and not, not just doing work? You know, this guy wrote a book book is, I can't remember, 300, 400, 500 pages long, right? And so I'm reading this whole book. It's not till, not till like 10 pages towards the end, right? Where he's like, yo, I'm sorry if I'm ruining this book for people, by the way. Um, And it's not towards, till towards the end where he's like, oh, I'm a billionaire now. Mm -hmm. He wrote a whole book about this phenomenon that we call Nike now. But the whole... The whole book essentially is struggle. It's him trying to... Dude, he was fighting with China, fighting with Japan in production, trying to figure out a name for his company. By the way, Nike would have been called like Dimension 6 or something. It was something crazy. And it was just this idea that the creation of this thing that's so amazing came through a lot of struggle. I read um, um, the book Tuesdays with Maury. Classic. Love that. Yeah, that's a classic. And it made me cry because, you know, he was just talking about the things, especially I think sometimes we get lost in our struggles and you forget that all this is going to come to an end at some point. Right. Our ego talks to us all the time and tells us, like, you should have all these things. But the things that we chase after all the time, they really don't matter when it comes down to it. When you come down to your last moments, what do you think about? You think about family, you think about your loves, you think about the things that really matter to you. And so it started helping me focusing on those things. But um, the real thing that I started thinking about is legacy. I started thinking of what, how can I inspire other people? I'm doing this thing and I want to play basketball. Basketball is my love. What else do I like? Yeah. I love people. I'm the first son of wow. five kids. Mm. And so I'm an older brother. I want my brothers to look at me not just as a basketball player, because that's cool to be a basketball player, but what else do you stand for? And I want yeah. them to understand my story, that I work for this. It's not, it's not playing basketball because I'm skilled, because if you go back in time, you understand that I wasn't skilled. I wasn't the guy that people wanted on their team. I wanted to be a doctor. And so I worked every day for this. I worked for this. Basketball isn't just a thing that makes me look cool. It's the thing that there is a story behind it. And so if you actually break it down and look at people by their stories, if you look at Nike as a story, if you look at KFC, KFC didn't get started until he was uh, calling on standards. He didn't get started until he was 60 in his 60s. Imagine 60 years old. You're like, yo, I want to start a company at 60. Because we all think that you're done. After 50, we all feel like it's all downhill, right? He started this thing that it's all over the world. KFC is in Africa, for crying out loud. But I'm only saying this because then I started thinking, I'm fighting to go back to play basketball. I'm fighting through my rehab. I'm working hard. I'm doing all these things. How can I tell the story so people can see that and understand that you achieve great things through hard work, through the tough times? You talk about mental health and these things. 
that's a battle that I had to fight. I had never dealt with mental health and sadness and depression before until basketball, which, which was my saving grace, the thing that I always put my energy into. If I was having a bad day, I would go work out. I would go play basketball and I would feel better. Now, I didn't have that. And so when it got taken away from me, now I had to deal with that, right? Yeah. Had my first ever panic attack where I was like, yo, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, yeah. and I had kept, I, I, matter of fact, I remember Kevin Love talking about his um, mental health struggles. And yeah. at the time, I was very oblivious to this because I never understood. I was like, yo, you're a basketball player. You're making a bunch of money. You're a good looking dude. You got a beautiful girlfriend or wife. Like, what are you, what's so, you know, I never understood it. And then I went through it, and I was like, wow, you really do feel like you're in a hole all by yourself because nobody else can see this hole, and you're, you're just there. And that's what's, I think it's like, it's almost this silent struggle that I think, you know, it's so good to just talk about because a lot of the times it looks on the surface that some people have it all together and they're perfect and they check off all the boxes, but there's like a storm going on underneath. And whether that comes from, like a physical setback or even it just pops up like for me I started having panic attacks um in high school in middle school actually and I played all sports growing up but I do remember at the worst I would get panic attacks like going up to bat in softball or like at the free throw line even though I was like in eighth grade and nothing mattered it was just like why is the mind doing this and I mean, for me, my journey is a bit different. Obviously, you know, I got on Zoloft five years ago and I don't plan on being on it my entire life, but I will say it's helped curb the physical panic so that I can then actually take the time to be like, what's really going on under the surface? Um, because a lot of times that panic is really a symptom of what's been bubbling for a while. But I mean, I wanna talk just briefly a little more about rebuilding the beast. Can you tell us, um, what you're doing right now with that what are the goals for that so my goal of for rebuilding the beast is telling stories and like i said reading and watching and seeing stories of other people and understanding the struggles that they fought through and the faith and perseverance that they had during their struggles how that led to something great that was something that really helped me during my time. It made me understand that the pain that I was going through was actually creating something in me. And that shift in perspective is really important. I want to give that to other people. And so I have met so many people along the way, and I've met so many people with interesting stories. I want to share that. If you stick with it, if you keep going, it's so worth it. If you keep fighting through your mental pains, if you keep fighting through your physical limitations, what you consider as limitations they actually will help you get to the next level that you actually really want to go to. Yeah. If I would have stopped when people told me that I couldn't play basketball, I would have just, that would have been it, right? The story yeah. got so much better when I kept going. I was sad as a 14 year old, you're sad, you go through these things, you don't have your family here to support you. I had my uncle, but you don't have your people here to support you. So, but I just kept going. I kept, and I, the more that I kept going, the more people kept started coming into my life. The more people were there to help me. It's kind of like the book, The Alchemist, right? If you're going on your journey to find your treasure, people are going to be attracted to your energy. That, that force of like, I'm going for it, right? And people are going to help you along your way. A lot of times we feel lonely. 
And, you know, that's another thing that really, really hurts with the mind. So yeah. I want to show people that they're not alone in their struggles. There's so many people out there with amazing, inspiring stories. I've, I've met so many people since I started this. I just started, what, two months ago in quarantine. And so many people have reached out to me. Matter of fact, I'm like, I'm, that's, that's the thing that's keeping me so busy right now. People are like, I'm so bored in quarantine. And I can't understand yeah. it because I meet all these people. And uh, they, I, I just want to keep writing about writing their stories and putting it on Instagram. So far, my whole idea is to just keep telling these stories so people right. understand that they're not alone in their pains and yeah. there's just beauty beyond the struggle. Dude, I love that so much. So it's right now, so you started two months ago. It's on Instagram. It's a collective of young, dedicated athletes or athletes of all ages, right? It's right. athletes. It's people. It's like there's just people who are just fighting through different adversities. There's people who are yeah. handicapped and they're you see them doing amazing things on, on there there's they just they just have this lust for life like yo i'm gonna keep going i want to inspire people and let them know that they're not alone um incredible i do want to touch upon um so you said have you ever had a panic attack you had one panic attack when when it actually all hit you uh yeah it's just like this idea that it was like yo this is gonna be so hard and it was like what am i gonna do what how am i gonna do this I, it's, it's two years of recovery like it, it, it all hit me at one time and I just started crying. And yeah. I'd never felt that feeling before. And it, it was like a random place too. I think it was at an airport or on a plane or something. I, 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 I wanted to get off the plane. I was like, yo, I got, and they were holding me back. And it was all this, it became this whole thing. It's rough. So for me, I had my first panic attack uh, also on an airplane, but I was getting off an airplane. Um, and I think it was a physical thing. I was just overheated and I actually had too many Sour Patch Kids that like made my blood sugar spike and then drop. And it actually was a blood sugar thing. But after I woke up in a wheelchair, I was like 13. And after that point, I just started having these panic attacks because I thought that it felt like a loss of control. When, you're, when you get to that point where you're just like so worked up and like the fight or flight response takes over, you really feel like you are in the back seat to something else that's driving you and um you know i think it like you were saying it's important though not to let that define you and to just keep working hard and keep getting back out there and doing stuff what helped you come down from your panic attack so for me i've done a lot of breathing um exercises and work with uh cbt which is cognitive behavioral therapy so for example um in those moments that what they say to do, I have these tricks of counting on my fingers or looking out in the world and, and simply noting like everything that's blue in the room or everything that's like red because it seems so silly, but that takes your mind away from spinning because really anxiety is this like avoidance of suffering. You think that something really, really, really bad's gonna happen and it goes back to our instinct, our survival instinct of like, fighting lions as cavemen because it's a, a true adre adrenal rush so to get me down from that I'd have to really like make things simple and just focus on the present moment and then for me also um sometimes laying down I once laid down in the lobby of a, a Wells Fargo building <laughs> um because I was so dizzy and this this guy was just like you sleepy you taking a nap and I was like no, it's cool. I'm just having a panic attack, like all good. For me, I've always used humor to just deal with it. And that's why people often think I'm like joking about it. But it's like, those were really real feelings. 
I live in LA and uh, I avoided driving on the freeways for a while. I wouldn't take the far left lane because I was would be scared about getting stuck in traffic. And for me, it was a fear of fainting, which I associated with losing touch with reality and ultimately death. I just felt so ungrounded. And um, so in those moments, I think it's important to ground yourself. My rebuilding the beast um, has been learning how to be my own parent and how to, they call it self-soothe. Um, so essentially it's like you're a scared, crying baby. You know, you're feeling that. It's stepping into my little adult chair and being like, it's okay, Katie, like, you're gonna be fine. Like talking myself down almost and just being like, like this too shall pass. I say that a lot. This too shall pass because it does pass. Um, but in the moment, it feels like it's your entire reality. That's a very, very good point is that it's remembering that it will always pass. That tough, whatever it is. I think what brought me out of my panic attack was I've only had one. And that was enough for me to at least understand what it is. Because in my life, I just never understood how, you know, I just knew like, yo, if I'm having a bad day, I just go work out. I had a friend who talked me off the ledge, metaphorically, yeah. obviously. But they talked me off of it because they were able to like connect with me, right? They knew me. And so we were talking and they, we, they just brought up some things and we were talking and it just felt good to empty it out. And so now I actually make it a point. I don't wait till something goes wrong before I do the things and the measures that help me feel good, right? I have to work out all the time. I work out every day. It doesn't necessarily have to be all out, which I do go all out a lot of the time, but it might just be walking outside just for 30 minutes or an hour, right? Something you have to move your body, it helps you vibrate at a higher frequency. That's one, I eat better, I eat healthy. I make it a point to connect with people, connect with my friends especially, but connect with people. Because something about that just helps you, it just, it creates this, you could call it happiness, could call it just well-being general. The ability to connect with people on a deeper level than just, hey, what's up? Talking about, you know, my day and, and that's actually one of the reasons why I'm so, like, I'm so passionate about Rebuilding the Beast is because now I get mm -hmm. to connect with people through their pain, through their struggles and people are really, like, somebody called me, they said, I'm willingly vulnerable like we just share right mm -hmm. we share our deeper selves it's not me basketball player 611 it's it's festus it's like yo let me talk to you about the things that i've been through and i'm like wow like this is this feels good to be able to talk about this with some just being able to take off this mask this this thing that we all put on in this new age of social media and everything and it's a metaphor for how we really are like we always feel like we have to be our best selves and we have to put this fake smile on all the time. Like, I might not feel it today. Like I have now my friends, like we always really with each other. Like, yo, what's going on with you, man? Are you okay? Totally. I think it's like, it's important to just realize when you are spiraling or whatever, or you're on the verge of something. And I love that reaching out, becoming willingly vulnerable because that's what other people connect with the most. That's, that's, that's very important. And it's the same thing as, you know, people have therapists and it's just, the ability for you to open up. I think that that's something that people overlook sometimes. And it's just, it's important to have a space where you can be just naked and you can just talk to people about what you're going through. Yeah, speaking of talking to people about what you're going through, guys, this is Katie. I'm popping in from the future. There's been a three week break in the action. Uh, Festus and I continued to talk about vulnerability. Then we got into some mindfulness meditation, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was all set to drop the episode, but then bam. The world changed overnight with George Floyd. 
the last three weeks have shown us that much of the world as we know it is still incredibly fractured. And so I wanted to sit down with Festus again, who's now joining us from Germany, and discuss the revolution. We're, we're calling from the future, yes. We are calling from the future. Um, a lot of different emotions have been happening over the past couple weeks. Um, you've been amazingly vocal on your platform. You know, we, we left off talking about rebuilding the beast, and I'm sure you're still continuing to rebuild the beast um, with slightly different conversations. So can you tell me a little bit about what's been going on with you over the past couple weeks? One of the tough things that is are that this world has been awoken, right? We've been we've been kind of in a slumber a little bit with the way we looked at social injustices. And when the George Floyd shooting happened and you I'm sure everybody around the world has seen this at this point, it kinda it struck a nerve. It was I think it's a straw that's broken the camel's back in terms of we just it's something that it keeps happening in in the way the social justice sees the black man as opposed to anybody else but it's just man mm-hmm. when does this stop mm-hmm. what i've seen so far is just a, a whole community outrage everybody's everybody saw that and was like wow we didn't know so many people said that like we didn't know what was happening and my brain just like couldn't understand it at first because i'm like you guys heard us protesting for Ahmad Arbery just a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. You heard us protesting for Tamir Rice. We heard us protesting for Philando Castile. You heard us protesting for like I can't even name I I can't even name the people anymore. It's so many people. At what point does this stop? Right. You know? And so the phrase Black Lives Matter somehow became a controversial statement because you say black lives matter and people took that and it's like oh what does that mean are you saying that nobody else matters are you like no that's not what we're saying the true phrase all lives matter is it's not false all lives should matter but for all lives to matter you have to take into consideration the people who are being killed Mm -hmm. with no consequence absolutely people are, are literally shooting people on the street and getting away with it like just because oh yeah well you know Nobody's asking any questions. Matter of fact, it took for for social media to see the shooting of Ahmad Arbery. Yep. For later, for for the guys, uh, the perpetrators to be convicted. So, to me, at this point, it's like, what do we have to say for you to understand what that means? Right. Um, I think that the conversations that we've been having for years, for years, and I don't mean a couple years. I mean, I mean, this has been happening all the time. We've been talking about civil rights for a long time. Mm-hmm. This conversation was able to be heard because of coronavirus we're sitting at home and we're watching this video and i think people like everybody got to see there's no distractions there's no work there's no sports games there's no show like it's we're home and we're right. everybody's and so we're all talking about it mm-hmm. in that regard it was good because it's given us a chance to really sit down and understand like hey right. this is something that needs to be addressed Second of it is you see protests all over the place and people are just outraged. And you, it's actually been a uniting thing. I've been to a couple of protests and walking with people, walking with brothers and sisters. Because at the end of the day, this is not a black and white thing. This is a humanity thing. This is a, like, for us to be a nation, which is the nation with that the, the preaches freedom and right. liberty for all, 
we're only as strong as our weakest link. If we are all great, if we are all free, if we all have that ability to, to choose and move and create and become what we want to be and we become a, we become a greater nation because we're all free and we're all pushing the needle, the needle forward. So yeah. right now the conversation is how can we educate people so they understand? Because I think a lot of people that don't join in on the conversation or are uncomfortable with it, they just don't understand what the conversation is. Yeah. The conversation is, as a black man, I should not be more susceptible to police brutality. As a black man, I should get an equal sentencing mm -hmm. for the same crime as anybody else in society. Mm -hmm. As a black man, I shouldn't feel like I can't get opportunities because of the color of my skin. These are all the conversations and all it's all related, right? right? And so now we are deconstructing what it means in society right now. What yeah. does it mean to be black? Why do people say to me personally, you sound very educated for a black guy, for an African, for you're very educated. It, these are things that, what does it mean to be black? What, what do you think it is? You know, I've been pulled over by a cop. I, at 16 years old, I was pulled over and they drew a gun on me. The police officer pulled a gun on me when, you know, he asked me to, to grab my license. I'm 16 years old. I didn't know much about this. Matter of fact, I just came from Africa. So when you tell me to bring my, my license out, I'm obeying the law. So I put my hand in my back pocket to bring out my wallet. Right. And he pulled a gun on me. This is in the middle of the highway. Right. And, I, you know, it's, it's such a, I think that it's, these are conversations that we just need to have. Absolutely. But it is simply interesting to note that we weren't thinking about this and we weren't making it an action item a mere like month ago as long as changes are happening the things that have happened have happened now we have to figure out ways to rectify those things mm -hmm. right because they can't keep it just can't keep going like this that's not the that's not the nation that i think of when i think of america i think that we all need to come together in this movement because like i said it's a humanity problem. Yeah. So right now, the issues are these injustices for different groups. It's not just black, but black is what we're talking about because right. it, that's what we keep seeing blatantly on, on camera. Yeah. A guy kneels the guy's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. I don't know what faction or what book or what training you go to to get that. So there needs to be more training. There needs to be more awareness there needs to be more education regardless white or black like you have to this there's no way you can do this to a human being right during this really tumultuous time is there any advice or things that you're doing right now to continue on this marathon of a journey i think the the first thing we have to realize is that we're not alone in this fight and that was the thing that i realized when i went out and i was marching and protesting and speaking out the crowd was mixed. I was in Sacramento, California, and the crowd was mixed. It was everybody. Every race was out protesting these injustices. This is how far we've come, right? Because years ago, we weren't even allowed to be out there protesting for black civil rights. What has kept me sane during this time and what's kept me going and what's kept me positive is the idea that there are people, it's a community, and so I reach out to people, I reach out to friends, and we have the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's uncomfortable, right? It's not something that nobody wants to talk about race, right? It's a, it's a very, a matter of fact, you don't talk about anything else but the racial conversation. But 
I'm happy that it's so mainstream now that we're all talking about it. Yeah. And it's people who I agree with and people I don't agree with. But regardless, people are listening. And I think that the ability to listen is so key right now because you can learn something from each party. And a lot of times you have to get uncomfortable to grow. And in this case, we're very uncomfortable. Everybody is. is we're having the uncomfortable conversations. Mm-hmm. And this is how we are going to learn. This is how we're going to grow as a community. And if in Germany, we're having a conversation. If in London, they're having a conversation. And they're protesting in France and Belgium and Brazil. These are all people that have seen these things. And it's like, wow, it's woken everybody up. So um, I'm not one to, to celebrate situations like this. But at the same time, I'm also one to realize the the opportunity in a disaster, the opportunity in in a in a really bad situation. So the way we can turn this around is taking advantage of these conversations, creating action plans, creating policies, and mm-hmm. really educating ourselves on the things that are happening. You know, on a, on a political level, and understanding as people mm-hmm. what is it what it is that we're voting for when we're voting for different policies. Mm-hmm. Are we voting on policies that are going to create and continue this systemic oppression mm-hmm. or are we creating situations that are going to be better for human humankind as a whole mm-hmm. i think that's that's what i'm really really excited about and that's what um you know, this opportunity right now we should not let that go to waste i love that tell me the meaning of your name one more time my name is ifan chiku and it means nothing is impossible with god mm. And if I really take that to heart every day, when I, I, whenever I feel like things are bigger than me, I always know that I have to lean on my strength and I lean on God. I love that. Festus, thank you so much for being the first ever guest on Sad Jocks. We have talked about so many things and I hope that people listening Uh, will follow Rebuilding the Beast and they will follow you and they will continue to get involved in the things that you're posting and um, the work has just begun. So I really thank you for jumping in here and uh, much love. Likewise, likewise. This is awesome. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, that should do it for episode one of Sad Jocks. Hey, if you have a question, comment, or guest referral, email sadjocks33 at gmail.com. Next week, I'll be sitting down with Connor Perry, a pro baseball player for the Detroit Tigers. And we're talking all things Zoloft. That's right. I cannot wait for that one. For now, stay hydrated, rest up, and I'll see you out there on the field.